Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 10, The Battle of the Golden Spurs. A good day to die hard. It is the hour before sunrise, on May 18th, 1302. All across the city of Bruges, men stir. Most are workers, and some are used to waking up this early. But today, they will not be going to their usual jobs. They slip out of their beds, get dressed, and gather what tools might be useful. Out on the street, they are joined by others, people who had been banished from town in the days and weeks before, but have snuck back in during the night. This is Bruges, so they are mainly cloth workers, such as weavers, drapers, and fullers, but the people stealing out into the still dark streets include artisans of all kinds, smiths, butchers, bakers, coopers, chessmakers, carpenters, and so on and so forth. No, they are not going to their jobs, but they are going to work. Bruges is under French garrison. Not for the first time. The day before, 800 troops, including around 120 mounted knights, had marched in. They are led by a French governor, Jacques de Chatillon. The people of Bruges had expected the French delegation to be coming to offer peace terms, but instead found heavily armoured and armed soldiers marching through their streets. Tensions were running high in the city, but the French knights perhaps out of sheer arrogance or maybe just ignorant of how hostile an environment they were walking into, do not take heed. Most of the French soldiers are still sleeping. The workers in the street have grown in number. As more individuals join the gathering mob, the silence is replaced by a low rumble of collective intent. Their focus becomes drawn to two men who have stood up on a packing cart. One is a weaver called Peter de Koning, and the other is a butcher called Jan Breidel. One of them begins to speak. He talks of the threat of the French troops and the occupation, but also of those who support them in the town. He talks of the need to pursue their rights and liberties as workers, and more importantly as town citizens and people of Flanders. The crowd begins to join in with refrains amidst his words, Shouts of agreement and support can be heard. The silence of the morning is truly broken. The man's companion joins in now and kicks off in a frenzied tone. The crowd's mood escalates in due fashion. There is anger here, and a bloodlust can be seen rising amongst many a man's eyes. The noise and commotion has drawn the attention of nearby residents. Heads are poking out of windows. Woken babies can be heard crying riotously roused from their slumber, and then the signal to begin can be heard over all of it. The bells of the Belfort and the others around the city begin to toll. The rumblings of the mob have become hysterical shrieks, and all its members at once disperse. Sure enough, they attract the attention of some French sentries who come out onto the streets to investigate this early hour agitation but they stand no chance. A 
as they don't expect a wave of weavers and other workers wielding weapons to come breaking over them. Their screams of surprise and agony join the distant cries of infants and the violent cries of rebels as they are stabbed, cut, and torn from limb to limb. The morning's work has begun, and the now rioting members of this mob quickly spread across the town. They are hunting Frenchmen and anyone who supports them. Over the following hours, as they stream across the roads and paths of Bruges, any Frenchman brave or foolish enough to confront them is cut down. Some French speakers try to hide or deny their Francophilia. The rioters therefore demand that they pronounce a Dutch phrase, schild and friend, shield and friend. If mispronounced, then the mob gives no mercy. But it's not just the French in town that have reason to fear. Some of the patriciate, members of the land-owning urban elite who govern the town, have gone into alliance with the French. These are known as Leliards. Many workers, known themselves as Liebarts, have scores to settle with this urban elite. And they seek them out in their homes, pull them out to the street, and slaughter them. This would become known as the Bruges Matins, or the Good Friday of Bruges. Sources vary on the number of casualties, ranging from 200 to 2,000 dead. Anyone who spoke French, and anyone who supported the French, was in grave danger that morning. Once it was done, the canals of Bruges were littered with soon-to-be-bloated bodies, the blood from which stained the streets and the walls. It was a brutal massacre, and it would reverberate through the history of the lowlands. It was a violent spasm of rising tensions that would begin to occur in many lowlander towns, and particularly in Flanders. The forces of medieval urbanization and commercial wealth had come to bear on the power struggles that had long defined this region. Not only were those struggles between the varying layers of nobility, from kings to counts to castellans, now towns and their governance were in the hands of an urban elite, and as importantly, an independent-minded working class had emerged from the common class. With the massacre that they conducted in those early morning Bruges hours in May 1302, this working class had very much entered the fray. So how did it get to this, and what would it lead to? Well, in this episode, which is going to be a hefty one, we are going to explore what led to the Bruges Matins, as well as what resulted from it. As brutal as it was, it would not be the culmination of this power struggle, but merely a prelude to the main event, which will be a bloody battle in a muddy bog outside a town called Courtrike. But to get there, we need to fill in some details. It's important to remember that the hierarchy of temporal power in feudal societies was shaped like a pyramid, with the king or the emperor at the top, followed by the upper nobility, princes, dukes, counts, margraves, followed by the lesser nobility, knights and castellans and lower lords, followed by everybody else. Those above bequeathed land to those below in exchange for their obligation and military service. In previous episodes, we have talked quite a lot about the upper nobility, the various counts and dukes and kings and emperors, but we haven't spoken much about knights as of yet. Life in Europe around these times 
was incredibly violent. The lack of any real central authority controlling things meant the power was generally wielded through the sword. If you were the lord of a certain area, like the Count, you would give out the right to exploit the land to lower nobles, knights, who in exchange would be obliged to offer you military service. Being a knight was expensive. First of all, you needed a war horse, preferably a really big and powerful one, a destrier. These massive animals were decked out with armor plating, which could weigh up to 40 kilograms, and would sometimes have spikes sticking out of it with which to annihilate any enemies they trampled over. But those horses were cumbersome to ride, so when traveling around from place to place, knights would also need at least one other smaller, more comfortable horse. Add to that your armor, your chainmail, your helmet, your sword, your lance, your spurs, and you're looking at a really costly exercise. But it doesn't end there. Getting into all that armor takes ages and requires help. You need a breastplate stretcher. <laughs> you would also need to lug all that equipment around, so you would have to have several servants and a squire to help you with all of that. But of course, then you also had to supply those servants and your squire with tents, food, and all the other living essentials, as well as your banners with which to show off from which house you came and to whom you owed your allegiance. So to be a knight, you needed cash. As this was a violent era, there was a very high chance that your life would end at the point of a sword, so you also needed to be skilled in battle if you were going to survive long enough to try and move up the feudal ladder. On top of regular training, knights would take part in tournaments. Tournaments would be grand affairs that would be hosted by lords in the grounds outside of castles. Here, knights were invited to take part in war games, in which they could demonstrate their military prowess, often through a melee or by jousting. A melee would either consist of two teams of horsemen clashing into each other and trying to break each other's ranks, or an all-in battle royale in which knights would fight either on foot or on horseback. The aim would be to defeat your opponent and hold them for ransom, as a nice way to make back some of the many costs which being a knight incurred. Jousting saw two knights on horseback charging at each other with their lances leveled, trying to smash the opponent off their horse. At the end of the tournament, huge feasts would be held and prizes would be awarded to the bravest and the best fighters. The French word for a knight is chevalier, and it is from this that the word chivalry derives. The idea of chivalry developed around the 11 to 1200s, often encouraged by the church to try and moderate military bloodlust and promote some kind of ethics within warfare. So knights would be bound by oath to honor their overlord and were encouraged to take prisoners rather than kill unarmed opponents, especially other knights. We've already mentioned an early example of how the church tried to bear influence on knighthood in episode 6, where we talked about the peace and truce of God, which tried to limit the abuses knights would inflict on commoners. It was for chivalric reasons that knights would try not to kill each other, not only in tournaments, but also in battle. If an opposing army was routed, knights would often prefer to capture their opponents and hold them for ransom, rather than finish each other off. This, along with many other aspects of feudal society, 
helped to develop a kind of knightly arrogance in which they would see themselves and each other as above the commoners. Commoners could be ridden down with no issue, but other knights? No, they were like you, and they deserved honour and mercy. Since it cost so much money to be a knight, many people chose not to take on the prestige of that title, and would instead just fight as mercenary armoured cavalry. These would often be people who, although they didn't have the funds required to be a knight, could still fight and would be available for hire to bolster medieval armies. Also available for hire would be mercenary pikemen, foot soldiers, archers, and crossbowmen. Finally, and especially in Flanders and the Lowlands, armies would be supplemented by the civic militias of the town. Each town would have its own militias and they would be used to patrol the city walls and keep guard over the towns to ensure security. Any man living in a town or city could be called upon to take part in the militia and although the militias would maintain arsenals of weapons, most people would have kept their own weapons and armor at home. Each guild in a town would be required to give a certain amount of their members to the town militias, depending on the size of the guild. The biggest caveat with the town militias is that they were not allowed to fight in wars outside of the count's own territory without the explicit permission of the town councils. Flemish armies were used in all sorts of different theatres of war over the 1200s, particularly as mercenaries in wars in England, but also in campaigns fought by Flanders in Holland and Hanno, but any members of the city militias were only there upon the express permission of their councils. At this point, you could be forgiven for thinking, over the last episode and this one up until now, that you accidentally subscribed to the History of Flanders podcast. Excuse us for this, as we've just had to convey some pretty big trends and forces, and Flanders honestly was the most emblematic of those during these times. If you cast your mind back several episodes, you'll remember that the title of Count of Flanders was passed down a very long sequence of guys, regularly called Baldwin. In around 1205, Baldwin the Ninth was one of the leaders of the disastrous Fourth Crusade. He was a popular leader. He got himself elected as the new Latin Emperor, but was also captured by Bulgarians in battle and died in prison. In the lowlands, he left two young orphan daughters. The eldest, at age six, was Joan. She became the Countess of Flanders and Hanau until her death in 1244. Her younger sister, Margaret, meanwhile, was married off by their liege lord, the King of France, to a guy called Bucard of Avennes. She was 10 years old. Bucard of Avennes spent several years as the bailiff of Flanders, trying to fully legitimize the marriage. Margaret bore him a son called John, but her older sister Joan, as the Countess of Flanders, hated the whole thing and had tried to prevent the marriage. Finally, she managed to have it annulled in 1215. Bucard resisted with force, however, and through his own political wranglings, backed himself into a corner in which he was finally imprisoned by Joan before being beheaded in 1219. Margaret was finally free. She remarried in 1223, this time to someone called William of Dampierre, and she bore him another son, also called William. 
Years later, Countess Joan, the eldest sister, died without an heir, and so the title of Flanders passed to Margaret. Now she had sons of two different lines. One was an Aven, the other a Dampierre, and they would begin to lay claim to her whole inheritance. From the 1240s, it was agreed that Flanders would go to the Dampierre line and Hanno to the Aven line, but this angered both families, and so their ongoing quarrel over the matter took up the imagination of wider lowland political affairs while everyone waited for Margaret to die. But this didn't happen until she reached the ripe old age of 77 in 1280. So each party had about four decades to lay plans for their power plays. Both families lined up marriage alliances that would seek to encircle the other. The Avens with the Counts of Holland and the Dampiers with the Dukes of Brabant. But as these were violent times, violence was often also a legitimate solution to problems and problematic people. William of Dampierre, Margaret's son, attended a tournament in Trasegnies, or as we call it in Australia, Trasegnies, in 1250, and was murdered. His brother Guy, at around 25 years old, would be the joint Count of Flanders with his mother for the next half century or so. Guy turned his attention pretty quickly to the problem of the Avens, his cousins, and so went about purchasing the title for the Marquisate of Namur. Unfortunately for these plans, the person with the title for Namur did not actually rule Namur. This was done by Henry V of Luxembourg, who took umbrage at this new claimant. After a wee bit of warfare, Henry and Guy settled it in the usual horse trading fashion of the Middle Ages by agreeing that Guy of Dampierre would marry Henry's daughter. Isabella, who doubtless had little say in the matter. Namur therefore came to Guy as a part of her dowry, as long as his titles for Flanders passed to their children, and not to the children that he already had. Guy of Dampierre was pumping out children. He would end up having 16 of them, and found himself in the tricky situation of needing to play medieval matchmaker and find suitable marriages for all of them. To add to an already complicated story, the County of Flanders was also in a really strange political position towards the end of the 13th century. Flanders was divided into two parts, as we know, with one part being in fief to the King of France and the other to the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany. And with the same person, the Count of Flanders, who was now Guy of Dampierre, a vassal of both. For a long time, the Counts of Flanders had managed to wrangle their way through medieval politics as though they were independent, just going along doing their own thing. But throughout the 13th century, the growing towns of Flanders, particularly the so-called Big Five of Bruges, Ghent, Ypres, St. Omer, and Kortrijk, had become extremely prosperous from the international wool trade. These towns had come to rely almost wholly on the supply of wool from England for its cloth-making industry. So Flanders found itself economically tied to a rival kingdom, which its liege, the King of France, was well on its way to becoming historic enemies with. The problems which this entanglement of conflicted interests brought up are illustrated by a series of events that happened between 1270 and 74, when Countess Margaret perhaps in a 
fit of old age senility, decided to seize the possessions of all English merchants in Flanders. Margaret believed that the English king, Henry III, owed her compensation for support that she had given him during the revolt in England of a guy called Simon de Montfort. Margaret had allowed Henry's wife, called Queen Eleanor, to stay in the town of Dummer, nearby Bruges, and use it as a base from which to recruit mercenary soldiers to fight in Henry's army. Henry, however, believed that since the soldiers were mercenaries and not knights, which had been provided out of feudal obligation, he didn't owe her anything. So in retaliation, Henry and his son Edward I seized the goods of Flemish merchants in England and halted the export of all English wool to Flanders. This had a crippling effect on the towns and cities of Flanders, which required English wool in order to survive, and led to a huge amount of pressure being put on the Countess from the big cities to find a resolution to this issue. The dispute was resolved in 1274 with the Treaty of Montreux, in which it was agreed that each ruler would have to pay their own subjects what they had lost, but the difference between the two amounts would be paid back to the ruler who had lost the most. A committee, therefore, of four Flemings and four Englishmen was set up to figure out this amount, and they determined, and this has got to be the worst job for a medieval auditor in the world, that the English had lost 3.3 times as much as the Flemish, meaning that Margaret had to pay the English a huge sum of money. The treaty also freed English merchants from needing to pay customs taxes in Flanders, meaning that now the Flemish merchants were effectively cut out of the carrying trade, taking stuff between Flanders and England. As you can imagine, this was all rather humiliating for Flanders and for the big towns, which found themselves with very large bills to pay for Margaret's ill-judged move. She abdicated as Countess of Flanders in 1278 and then died two years later. Inside the towns, the economic problems of Flanders began to tear apart the balance of power and political unrest exploded in many of them over the next two decades as the various groups within the towns, like the Patriciate and the Guilds, started to openly clash with themselves and with each other in their attempts to grasp onto the reins of power. Riots and revolts broke out in Bruges and Ypres in 1280, known as the Moor Lemay and the Cockerule, as well as other disturbances in Ghent in 1275 and up until 1280. While the circumstances which led to the uprisings were different in each town, historians often used to lump them together under the umbrella of social revolutions by the members of the lower classes, such as the guilds against the patriciate and against the Count of Flanders. More recent studies, however, suggest that actually it was more a case of different members of each class manipulating and using each other and opportunistically picking sides as the situations unfolded to try and gather the best outcomes for themselves that they possibly could. Basically, Flanders was suffering from extreme political infighting at pretty much every level of society possible. In 1285, a 17-year-old boy was crowned King Philip IV of France. Philip the Fair. He had ambitions extending beyond his inherited domains, and particularly as regarded 
his realm's relationships with England and Flanders. In 1294, war broke out between France and England over the areas of Gascon and Aquitaine, way down in the southeast of what is today France, but which at this point were territories controlled by the English king Edward I. Flanders, with all the aforementioned issues bearing down upon it, and stuck as it was between the two great powers, would not escape any of this unscathed. By this time, Guy of Dampierre had forged a more amicable relationship with the English king than his mother had done, but this had greatly displeased his actual liege lord, the young King Philip IV of France. In 1294, he arranged a marriage alliance between himself and the English monarchy by affiancing one of his many daughters to the Prince of Wales. For this, he and two of his sons were imprisoned by the French king until he renounced the marriage. His daughter was also imprisoned, but even after the marriage was cancelled, was not released, and would remain in prison for the remainder of her life. Lucky her. Philip IV then tightened his grasp over Flanders. He ruled that only French coin could be used in the territory, and that Guy must devalue other currencies from England and from the Holy Roman Empire. Then... He confiscated all precious metals, redeemable only by French coin, and in 1295 put an embargo on English goods. Philip IV was a clever politician, and he understood that his strongest move against the Flemish count was to hit him in the woolly bits. He gave Flemish cloth a monopoly in French markets, but he also gave Guy the benefits of the trade embargo on England. Whatever was confiscated from English ships Guy could keep. This turned the town people, whose livelihoods depended on the wool trade with England, against Guy. The tensions between Flanders and France only continued, and they got worse in the beginning of 1296, when Guy of Dampierre tried to annex a city called Valencion in the territory of Hanau, which was ruled by his half-sibling family, the Avens, to Flanders. In response, Philip IV ordered Guy to Paris, where, in front of representatives of the big five cities of Flanders, he had his territory officially stripped away from him, but then returned in exchange for a massive fine. Guy also agreed not to retaliate against the Flemish towns which had chosen to align themselves directly with the French king, thus bypassing his authority as count. All of this just inexorably pushed Guy into a corner, and in early 1297 he renounced his loyalty to the French altogether, and went to seek an official alliance with the English. The response was brutal. Philip declared Flanders annexed to France. Guy tried his best to keep the cities under his control, dissolving the town council of Ghent and replacing it with allies of his own. In June 1297, Philip then sent his army of knights town infantry and mercenaries to bring Flanders to heel. Guy raised his banners. Around 43 banner lords, leading units of around 20 nobles, were joined by around 2,000 common foot soldiers. And in August, they all marched off to meet the French at a place called Bullscamp. The Flemish army was absolutely destroyed. A little bit over a week after this heavy defeat, the English king Edward I, landed in Flanders in the town of Slaus at the head of an expeditionary force. He had the intent of giving assistance 
to the Flemish against the French. He marched towards Ghent, where Guy was holed up in the castle of the Counts. The French kept rampaging through Flanders, taking towns and cities, and in September 1297, the aldermen of Bruges turned against their Count and aligned themselves with France. By the end of that year, a three-year truce was agreed between the French and Flanders. During this détente, Philip IV used many of his wily tricks to undermine the military strength of Guy. He bought off his knights and other nobles, promising them much reward for switching their allegiance to France. He then secretly conducted a separate peace with Edward, who, according to the terms of this peace, took his expeditionary force and set off to go and kill some Scots, as English kings have often been wont to do. The Franco-Flemish truce concluded in 1300, and immediately the French invaded again. Guy was now abandoned by the English, as well as many of his lords and knights. He had barely a hundred left. He was unable to defend against the French and surrendered. Along with his son and about three dozen family members, he headed off for Paris to plead his case. All of them were thrown in prison. Flanders was now officially a part of France. Philip IV appointed a French knight called Jacques de Chatillon as his governor in charge of a full-on military occupation. Our podcast is about to be militarily occupied by some advertisements, thankfully not in French, and only for a minute or so. But once they're all over, we'll be back to sow rebellion and dissent amongst the Flemish. During Guy of Dampierre's struggle against the French, he always also had to contend with the ruling bodies of the various cities in his domain, and in particular of the Big Five. Because of the political wranglings between the Count and his French liege lord, many of the urban patriciate had sided with the French, given the economic benefit to them of doing so. But most of the workers beneath them those who made up the craft guilds in particular, as well as the non-patriciate merchants and nouveau riche, were also seeking greater freedoms and rights within towns, as well as being confronted with the conditions of being under French military occupation. Although it is impossible to say that all workers sided with the Flemish count and all patricians with the French king, there was enough of this sort of pattern that traditionally this history has been told as such. Although the Liebart faction did include many craft guilds and their members, it was primarily for Flemish independence and included people of all social stations. Their name comes from the word for leopard or lion, animals indistinguishable to the medieval European mind, by the way, and represents the lion on the Flemish count's coat of arms, a black lion on a yellow shield. The Leliards whose name derives from the lily on the French coat of arms, included many members of the patriciate and nobility for sure, but there would have also been some workers and nouveau riche amongst them, or supportive of them. Anyone whose interests aligned with Flanders' continued loyalty to France was a leliard. Over the years, many people would have also switched allegiances between the two factions, or simply sat on the fence. The factionalism between these two groups only increased with this new French military occupation. 
and a year after the invasion, Philip IV himself came to tour his new territorial acquisitions, bringing his wife, Joan of Navarre, along with him. He understood the need to appease the commoners of the big Flemish cities. In Ghent, they asked him to get rid of taxes on consumer goods. They had put on a big feast in honour of the royal couple, and obviously had put their best cooks on the job because Philip IV duly abolished those taxes. This, however, caused great concern for the patricians of Ghent, who needed that money to keep the city's finances bereft after the instability of the last few decades in order. The patricians of Bruges didn't want to face the same problem as those in Ghent, so when it came their turn for a royal visit, they forbade commoners from asking serious questions to the king, and made it punishable by death were they to do so. Even worse, the guilds were the ones given the bill to pay for the royal visit to the city. As Philip and his queen Joan passed through the city, they were therefore met with crowds of people standing in absolute silence. The French queen was also shocked at how well-dressed all these silent people were, given how clothing was such a signifier of social status at the time, and most of them were commoners. She is said to have remarked, quote, I thought I alone was queen, but here I see 600, end quote. So now Flanders was a part of France. For centuries, the Counts of Flanders had enjoyed a lot of power. Sure, there had been times when that power had waned, but they had always been relatively independent despite being vassals of France. That independence had helped to foster the growth of a new social urbanization and industrial system of the kind that would prevail throughout the lowlands within a few centuries. But the Counts of Flanders this time had been unable to curtail the power of the French king when push finally came to shove. However, this new kind of urbanized society would absolutely push back. The new governor, Jacques de Chatillon had a typical knight's distaste for the lower classes, and his unfair treatment of them rankled the strong working class craft guilds, who also, remember, operated urban civil defense with their town militias. Although many would have been no great lovers of the Flemish count, they came to hate the French and those who supported them even more. In June 1301, the craft guilds of Bruges, led by the weaver and the butcher that we mentioned at the beginning, Peter de Koning and Jan Breidel, infuriated by the insult of having to pay for the king's visit to the town, simply refused. The Leliart faction imprisoned them, only for a mob of their supporters to break them out. When the French arrived to restore order, the rebels were exiled from the city and de Chatillon demanded that the walls of Bruges be torn down. Tensions were high, making the most of the pandemonium. Two of Guy of Dampierre's sons, the Count of Flanders who's still imprisoned in France, John and Guy of Namur, returned to Flanders and went about stoking the anti-French sentiment which was beginning to build amongst the lower classes. They became the symbol of independent Flemish counts, and it was around them that the Liebarts began to rally. At their command, Peter de Koning led a force of Liebarts back into Bruges, 
and took it over again in December 1301. As if all of this wasn't already enough, 1302 began amidst a very harsh winter and food shortages struck the cities of Flanders. In April, the patricians of Ghent asked de Chatillon's permission to reintroduce taxes on food, which he gave. But the next day, in response, the craft guilds of that city declared a general strike, and in the ensuing riots, several patricians were murdered, while hundreds of other Leliards found themselves trapped in the castle of the city. With Ghent seemingly on the way to being taken over by the anti-French Libards, de Chatillon marched upon it with an army, and when he got there, pulled an epic U-turn in policy, got rid of the taxes, and punished those who he had allowed to bring them in in the first place. Thus, Ghent was pacified, and would actually play no major role in the conflict which was about to erupt. Now de Chatillon's big problem was Bruges, and it was in that direction that he turned his attention once more. With his force of 800 soldiers, including 120 knights, he marched towards that town. The common people of Bruges, showing that they didn't really care about the whole Leliart and Libart factional differences as much as they did about staying alive, kicked out de Koning and submitted to the French governor. They had expected that by making such a gesture, de Chatillon would also arrive making overtures of peace towards them. Instead, as we mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, his entry into the town was militant and an exhibition of his full fighting strength. This French knight was making a statement to the people of these uppity cloth towns, people he quite frankly saw as peasants, that now he alone was in charge. And that is how we got to where we found ourselves at the beginning of this episode. Remember that the people of Bruges have been putting up with the consequences of this muscle flexing by France for over a decade and a half, and the feeling inside the city, which just opened its gates to the French, seems to have gone a full 180 degree switch overnight. So it was that in the wee hours of the morning, when Liebart leaders like those guildsmen Peter de Koning and Jan Breidel returned to the city. They were joined not only by their supporters, but also by many others, including some who must have helped kick them out before. Now, however, what was in vogue was to be anti-French, and so mob violence erupted, with many workers and anti-French sympathizers massacring anyone supporting this French tyranny. Into the whole great hotbed of geopolitical economic and social upheaval that have been developing between the heavyweights of France, Flanders and England, and amongst the scheming and plotting of other nobles and the urban ruling patriciate, jumped parties of workers, willing to kill for their own rights within it all. De Chatillon only managed to escape the violence that was the Matins of Bruges by dressing up as a commoner and sneaking away, which must have really irked his haughty French chivalric honour. Following the 18th of May and the Bruges Matins or the Good Friday of Bruges, a line had indeed been drawn in the boggy Flemish mud. The pressure-building years of toing and froing between the various agendas of all interested parties had come to a boiling point. For people in Flanders who were for Flemish independence 
A statement had been made and rapidly almost all towns, Ghent being the major exception, had joined in this rebellion. Members of all classes now had no choice but to join in because of how serious it had all become. There was no way that old mate Philip IV of France was going to hear about the Bruges Matins and these riled up Flemish towns and just sit back and ponderously consider giving concessions to anyone. Instead, he was going to do what he had consistently done for years and send his forces in to once again bring the Flemish to heel. To quote Randall Fegley, all throughout Flanders, quote, Merchants left their stores, peasants deserted their fields, and monks abandoned their cubicles. Pulling their war chests, the guilds were able to hire some mercenary crossbowmen, perhaps as high as 10% of Bruges' population headed for battle. After the Matins, everyone realized that the rebellion was unique. It was no longer a quarrel between two lords, but an entire people resisting a king. End quote. The main French stronghold was the nearby town of Courtreich, so it was there that this hastily composed army of town militia and commoners, random mercenaries and a few knights, all led by the sons and grandsons of the still-imprisoned Count of Flanders Guy of Dampier, headed towards. The town was still garrisoned by French soldiers, who hid behind its walls and presumably shouted obscenities at the Flemish, such as, A blubber nose at you! And your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. The Flemish army, they put the town to siege. Philip IV reacted pretty much exactly as expected and raised an army consisting partly of the creme de la creme of French chivalry and ordered his greatest knight, Robert of Artois, to command these forces in Flanders. The French army which would meet the Flemish at Courtreich was composed of roughly two and a half thousand knights and squires, with their shining armor and colorful banners sitting on their huge war horses. There was a thousand crossbowmen, about a thousand pikemen, and around two thousand other infantry. The Flemish side, in contrast, had barely any knights, with the few who were actually on their side being ordered to get off their horses and to fight on foot. The total size of the Flemish forces was around ten and a half thousand, and most of them were armed with a weapon known as a Chudendach, which translates literally as Good Day, though where the name comes from is actually still a mystery. It's a metal club slash spear mounted on a wooden club and is used to smash and spike things. Some of these forces also had swords or medieval machetes called falchions, some crossbows, and of course the militia-trained pikemen had pikes. The French army was confident going into the battle, especially given that these stuck-up knights fully believed in the chivalric illusion that they were born to a position of innate superiority over the Flemish commoners that they were about to slaughter. Robert of Artois sent a reconnaissance group out to inspect what they were facing, and upon return... He was told, quote, My Lord Count, I have seen nothing but rowdy peasants and weavers in army, and as I rode around the army I saw none of any importance save William of Yulik and my Lord Guy of Namur, a young knight who is the son of Guy of Dampierre. 
They are all on foot and have been posted along the banks of a river. End quote. It was commonly assumed at the time that one knight was worth the equivalent of 10 foot soldiers. In the eyes of the French knights, although they were slightly outnumbered in terms of actual total number of forces, their cavalry numbers made the prospects of the Flemish almost laughable. <laughs> On the morning of the 11th of July, the armies met in a field just to the east of Kortrijk. That morning, Peter de Koning and Jan Breidel, those most charismatic of guildsmen, were knighted. The Flemish were arranged in a sort of rough semicircular fashion outside the gates of Kortrijk Castle, which was to their rear, with one unit guarding the gates in case the French inside there tried to surprise them in the rear. The French army was separated from them by some brooks, small streams and ditches, which are totally consistent with everything we know about living in this boggy swamp, and the hazards of which the French were about to become fully acquainted with, because they were about to mount a charge into a mire of murderous morass. Oh, before we go any further, speaking of morass, we bet you didn't know that word was Dutch. Well, actually, you probably could have guessed it was Dutch. If you have listened to episode 8 of our show, the secret soggy story of sphagnum. It really shouldn't come as a surprise to you that there are many Dutch words for the kind of boggy landscape that is the lowlands. Morass is one of them, coming from the Middle Dutch, marash, and related to the current Dutch, muras. So there you go, morass. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. And actually, we just really wanted another excuse to say the word sphagnum. Sphagnum. After some initial harrying by crossbow across both lines, Robert of Artois sent in infantry to confront the Flemish, but some groups of impatient French knights decided that it was they who deserved the opportunity to cover themselves with the glory of battle. The infantry in front of them were ordered to part and allow the first wave of cavalry to begin their charge. However, they soon reached the first ditch, which their horses were able to wade through but which slowed them down considerably. Now, the shock of a cavalry charge is largely dependent on the momentum generated by charging at full speed, which takes distance, although it was probably still bloody scary for the Flemish pikemen who would bear the brunt of this charge, seeing the oncoming horses have to slow down and pick their way across a stream probably gave these pikemen a moment to take a breath. After passing the brook and attempting to reform, the cavalry charge continued, but they couldn't gain the necessary speed because they were already too close to the Flemish line. Instead, when they hit that line, the common people of Flanders stood firm and did not break. The benefits of the militia training came to the fore, as did the effectiveness of the pikes and the chudendachs, which went about smashing and stabbing at anything of a French, knightly, and or equestrian nature. The Flemish had intelligently prepared the battlefield well beforehand. They concealed the full extent of its bogginess from the French with brush and shrub. The bogginess was well and truly on everybody's mind, however, as the heavy cavalry found itself stuck in it and was met, bludgeoned, and hacked up by the pikemen and the commoners with their chudendachs. Now the thick, wet, 
and sticky blood of the French soldiers mingled with the thick, wet, and sticky mud of the Flemish ground. All became one as piles of horses, metal, flesh, and bones piled up upon themselves on the mud. Robert of Artois, surprisingly, remained sure of himself and his cause. After the first doom charge of his left wing, he rallied his right. Leading it himself, he set off along the same perfidiously muddy and obstructed route as those before him. Robert was slightly more successful in this charge, able to get through the Flemish line and tear at one of their banners. However, he was soon encircled by Flemish troops and at a crucial moment of battle, he slipped off his horse and he fell to the ground. According to legend, Robert is said to have begged for his horse's life from those surrounding him. This might seem ridiculous considering the situation he was in, but remember, knights at this stage in history had come to be able to depend on the code of chivalry in life and in warfare. If he had been facing an army of other knights, he could have fully expected to be captured and held for ransom. But Robert wasn't facing an army of knights, and upon hearing his chivalric plea for the life of his horse, the Flemish soldiers, these commoners, are said to have replied that they don't understand French. And instead they said, good day to Robert and his horse in the Flemish way, and smashed and stabbed them both to death. Apocryphal though this story most likely is, it has been handy in the history of this battle, since it's pretty much an allegory for the wider conflict between France and Flanders, or between the common class and the higher nobility. The battle was soon over. This had all happened over the course of a few short hours, and it quickly became apparent to the French army that they were completely screwed. They began retreating. Before the battle had started, the Flemish had been ordered, in contrast to all military norms of the time, to take no prisoners. The ensuing retreat of the French was therefore a bloodbath, with knights and soldiers being chased across the fields and brooks and chopped down by the militias as they tried to escape. The Flemish battle cry throughout had been Flanderen de Leo, Flanders the Lion, and many retreating knights, especially some Dutch speakers from Brabant, for instance, who had been fighting with the French, tried in vain to save their lives by repeating it. But anybody wearing spurs had clearly been on a horse, and so had clearly been fighting for the French. So despite their protestations and mimicry of this Flemish battle cry, they too were cut down. This was the first known battle in history where an army of foot soldiers defeated an army of knighted cavalry. More than a thousand French were killed in the battle, including 75 important nobles. The morning after, the victors scoured the battlefield, and they collected the spurs of the fallen French knights and hung them in the nearby Church of Our Lady. Many of them were cast with gold, indicating the knightly rank of the fallen. It was from this the battle gets its name, the Battle of the Golden Spurs. The effects of this battle rippled out over Europe. Even the Pope, Boniface VIII, was woken from his heavenly slumber. Such was the importance of the news. It was thought to have been impossible that such a military engagement 
could yield such a result. Yet it did. Shortly after the battle, the anti-French Liebarts faction established itself in power in all the Flemish towns, including Ghent, which had remained neutral. And from this time onwards, guilds, who had fought so viciously in the battle, would establish themselves in positions of power on town councils. No longer would they be excluded as they had been. Although the French would strike back against Flanders in the coming years, and there would be plenty of fighting still between both the Liebards and the Leliards, the medieval county of Flanders would not be annexed by the French again. The conflict between the Liebard and Leliard factions would be echoed in the various territories of the Lowlands over the next two centuries, as guilds and their militias clashed with nobility and the urban elite, just as they had done in Flanders. The Count of Flanders, Guy of Dampierre, died whilst still imprisoned in 1305. Following this, his eldest son by his first marriage, Robert of Bethune, was released from French custody and became the new Count. He was given a couple of concessions by Philip IV, namely that he could justify himself to peers rather than to the French Parlement, and also that he could crack on fighting with his half-sibling family, the Avens, who were by now ruling Holland. But that story is for another day. Most importantly, the Battle of the Golden Spurs became a symbol for a Flemish identity. This would be used in various ways throughout the centuries, right up until today. If you go to the main square in Bruges, for instance, you will see a statue of two men. That's the Weaver and the Butcher, Peter de Koning and Jan Bridal. Those men who had organized a massacre have since been celebrated as Flemish national heroes. The date of the Battle of the Golden Spurs, July 11th, is officially known as Flemish Community Day. It's a holiday in Flanders for only for government employees and Flemish public institutions. Flemish Community Day. That's a really nice name as well. They did, of course, miss an opportunity to call it something pithier, perhaps, or more historically referential, like France gets flambéed day, or whoopee, we killed a bunch of French knights day, or or even Chudendach. Right? Good day. Anyway, good for them, and good for us, as we've now touched upon Flanders enough that they don't have to feel too left out in our history of the Netherlands. And a spoiler alert, they will be left out for good eventually. As for us, we are going to head north again next episode and check out what was happening in some of the other lowland territories in the 13th and 14th centuries. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands, and for now, farewell and adieu. Oh no, not adieu. Totstrax. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.